Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. of human technological development has increased exponentially in the last 200 years or so, drastically changing the way we live and work. It's become such an intrinsic part of our world that looking back it almost seems inevitable. But why did it take until the 18th century to begin, and why did it begin in Britain of all places? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Scott Weaver. Hey. And Scott, you're a first-time guest. I am. I'm very excited to have you here. Me too. Excellent. Today, we're going to talk about the Industrial Revolution. Um, or, to be more specific, today, mostly precursor stuff to Industrial Revolution, because there's a lot we need to go over to just explain what is so incredibly revolutionary about the Industrial Revolution. Right. You can't talk about something that is this magnitude of change um, without having an idea of what it's changing from first. And we have a little bit of ground to cover kind of in that arena before we really get going. I kind of assumed there'd be something like that. Yeah, it's it's going to be a while till we get to like steam engines and oh, the juicy know, stuff. child slavery and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, the usual industrial right. revolution stuff. I shouldn't have said the juicy stuff just before you said child slavery, but like, you know, you know, <laughs> that one's on you, obviously. Right. Um, you know, talking about any revolution is really difficult to navigate because one of the things that we tend to do in general with history, and specifically I tend to do on this show, is try and present like a fairly cohesive narrative of like what happened. You know, thing one happened and then thing two happened and, you know, this led to that. And, and here's some very clear cause and effect. And the trouble with revolutions in general is they tend to be even very far after the fact, really difficult to pin down exact causes. Right. It's usually a synthesis of a bunch of different things going on at the same time to affect societal change on that level and that stands true even for like political revolution where there's some pretty clear you know so and so was deposed and there was an economic crisis and etc etc regime change that's hard enough well we're talking about something that's economic and social like the industrial revolution is it gets that much harder to really pin down what it is exactly that happened so we really need to keep that in mind as we go we are getting a very simplified um bird's eye view of things and a lot of times there's a lot more to the story than we necessarily have the the time or resources to go over right now would there also be the case where history is kind of at least recorded by those who are on the winning side i mean there's going to be some aspect of that i mean the number of different topics we're going to be talking about here um you're always going to get some value judgments rolled in where it's a little bit questionable as to whether that is necessarily a good thing or not. Right. Now, we're long enough after the Industrial Revolution that we sort of have both sides of those coins to look at, right. which is really helpful. Um, but 
what we're looking at here is essentially the development of not only like the modern industrial society, but also like the modern economic model of things like property ownership and uh, labor as the main uh, generator of wealth and things that are like really fundamental to our society that, you know, it's, it's hard to step back from and critique because they're still in effect on us today. Right. And we have had people critique them in the past. Karl Marx comes to mind. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff that's going to sound very familiar if you've read any <laughs> Marx whatsoever. I have not, but like excited. No, but like even even like the the most basic stuff about about communist oh, theory, right. it, you'll 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 find some some familiar ground. I guarantee. You. <laughs> um, things like um, you know workers' rights, things like uh, automation is a is a big thing that's going to be coming up. A lot of this is also going to sound very relevant to right now today. Oh yeah, because. The Industrial Revolution is most likely the biggest um, societal change to happen to humans since we stopped like hunting and foraging and settled down to practice agriculture. That's crazy to think about because it like in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago. Really, like, we're really still kind of like in the very infancy of the effects of that. Well, what I find most fascinating about that is that before the Industrial Revolution. Um, a lot of things to do with, uh, you know, economic production or agricultural production was fairly static. It's not as though nothing ever changed, but your basic model of how people produced food, how people interacted with other people economically, it looked pretty similar to someone in around 1200 as it would have, you know, nearly 2000 years before, right. which is crazy to think about yeah. because we have not had that level of stability in our society since the beginning of the industrial revolution. We've been full tilt ever since then. Totally. And it's, you know, it, it's things that we're still kind of grappling with, uh, now when we look at things like, uh, people worried about, um, automation of their jobs and, uh, you know, the potential, um, unemployment crisis that could be coming from that and whether or not that's actually going to be a problem or not. Like this is very modern stuff to talk about. And yeah. it's going to look very familiar when we're looking at people five, 600 years ago, worrying about the exact same things that people are worrying about now. So it's, it's had a profound effect on our society. Um, and that all starts again with, with just this, the, these small shifts, uh, you know, reaching back to the 13th century that are going to sort of snowball and get more and more chaotic as we go. Right. As to your point of whether or not this is a good thing or whether or not this has been spun by the victors, that's still kind of being determined is a little <laughs> bit, is kind of the problem there. Right. Um, there are a lot of people who will say, you know, the standards of living have gone up in a way that uh, are, is completely unparalleled in human history, that uh, wealth has increased uh, across the board in a way that's been unparalleled. A lot of other people will say, okay, well, yeah, but so has inequality and um, some of the byproducts of the Industrial Revolution, like uh, uh, colonialism specifically and, mm. um, you know, specifically uh, North American slavery, um, you know, are those necessarily worth some of the changes that we've gone through for the Industrial Revolution? Right. And I don't think there's one hard and fast answer to all of that, but we'll try and touch on as much of that stuff as we can and try and get a bit of an idea of just how far reaching all of this is. So we've been talking in really big terms. We should probably like step back a little bit and really define what we're actually going to talk about here. We're going to focus on Britain today. Um, the main reason for that is that most of the drivers for industrial revolution, uh, happened first in Britain. And that's not to say that the revolution didn't have effects across the world. Obviously it did, but many of the things that are happening, happening, you know, for example, in, uh, 
Germany in the 19th century and Japan in the 19th century are going to be adapting technology and ad adapting ideas that are first kind of experimented on in Britain. And so it is reductionist to only talk about Britain, and I acknowledge that, but it also makes it a heck of a lot easier to wrangle this whole thing right. into something that is in any way uh, manageable for us. So uh, Britain it is. The Industrial Revolution proper, people kind of vary on time period, but we're mainly talking about around 1760 is usually the earliest date that you'll see through to about 1840 is the latest date for uh, this you know first industrial revolution um, we'll be going far outside of that to do some establishment and things like that or looks look to uh, some effects of it but that's sort of where we're talking about um, that's actually less time than I kind of expected that's like 80 years sure yeah it's this boom in uh, technological innovation that's going to have like this massive effect on production on right. uh, um, capital on all of this stuff that that it, it's mainly centered in that 80 year period crazy to think that we're probably in another one like right now oh most likely like it's just I, I, bonkers yeah and and that's why a lot of this i think is so familiar totally the other thing i would mention before we get too much further is that like no revolution is ever born from comfort and convenience and so a lot of what's really interesting about uh the industrial revolution in in general is that it's constantly off kilter it's constantly kind of stumbling into the next thing and one of the biggest questions people tend to have about the industrial revolution is well why why there and why then you know why didn't the industrial revolution happen 1500 years earlier in rome why didn't it happen in china things like that right, right. and a lot of the answer to that is really simple and it's um something that again is really familiar today there have been multiple times in human history where technological change has been resisted on the grounds that people are worried that there won't be enough to do afterwards. Right. Uh, this is something that's known as the Luddites fallacy. Yeah. And we'll be getting into the actual Luddites at some point. Are you familiar with the Luddite fallacy? Uh, I mean, I know the term Luddite. That's about as far as my knowledge goes. Sure. I mean, again, we'll be getting more into the Luddites later, but right. it's, it's a group of people that uh, resented technological change and, and the effect that it would have on their livelihoods. Right. Um, the main problem with the Luddite or, or, or the, the core of the Luddite, Luddite fallacy is that if we automate work, if we make work easier and it puts people out of work, out of a job, mm. that there won't be any other work to do. And so far, that hasn't proven true. <laughs> so far. Again, that's something that's really interesting about now because the, the you know that only stretches to the point where work that is easy to do continues to be available. Uh, that work isn't completely uh, eaten up by automation mm -hmm. and that the work that's left over after automation occurs is easy enough for human beings to actually accomplish. Right. Um, so we might actually be running up against that wall someday, but this isn't about this podcast isn't about that. We're <laughs> talking about the past and for them it's no problem. But you get stories about Roman emperors who find out, you know, new ways of transporting uh, 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 grain that, that involve, um, you know, using animals more efficiently and they're going like, I can't pull my guys who pull sleds out of a job. Mm -hmm. Like they need to work. This would be an unkindness to automate this work. Right. So they're, they're holding back technological progress mm -hmm. out of compassion, basically. That's the way that they're seeing it. Right. Yeah. And the reason that they can do it is because there is this um, level of uh, plenty that there are enough people to do these really wasteful jobs. Right. They don't have to innovate out of necessity. Well, and I guess that still happens today. I remember in Japan seeing a older gentleman 
and his entire job was to stand on a road in a high vis vest with like a baton, right? Waving cars around a pothole. Wow, that was it. <laughs> I think there was even a sign beside him. Right, that's wild. <laughs> yeah, that's so unnecessary. Right, but like, that's what blinking lights are for? But you, you know, can't put the guy out of a job. No, I, right? I absolutely it, get it. It's to give him some income and something to do. Yep. Yep, it's it's a very very old problem. Let's talk about Britain in the medieval period. And a lot of history tends to be kind of focused on the people at the top, how they were living, what they were doing, and the decisions they were making. I, I really specifically want to talk almost entirely in in this this topic about all the other people, what they're up to, because right. that's what matters here. If you lived in Britain during, say, the 12th century. Probably what would happen is you would live near to a manor lord. They would have a big old house and they would own all the land around and you would have a contract with him. And this contract would basically say, um, you're not allowed to leave his land. So you're sworn to him. This is a feudal system. Right. But at the same time, he has to offer you certain protections. And some of that is, you know, military in nature um, in exchange for, you know, levying troops if anything does happen. Right. But some of it is just stuff like, I'm not allowed to turn you out of your house just because I don't like you. And not only that, but I have to guarantee that you're allowed to leave your house to your son. This is good for both parties because people tend not to really develop land unless they have a personal stake in it. Right. And so this gives these uh, serfs, basically, an incentive to actually work on these these fields uh, in a productive way and improve the land in a productive way. Right. So... The landlord would not give like a little plot of land to each person. Oh, they used what was known as an open field system. And so all of these lands around the, the manor house would be divided up. And, you know, some of them would be set as uh, sort of game reserves where, you know, you go in and it's a forest and you can hunt there. And some of it is going to be um, communal pasture. And it's just this big giant field full of grass. And you might keep a couple of sheep around, uh, you know, you get milk, you get wool, yeah, meat, it's great. Sheep are great. You have a place where you can take them and graze them. Mm -hmm. But so can your neighbor and so can, you know, your cousin who lives across the way and like everyone goes to the same place. But it's this big field, so it doesn't get depleted. You can rotate them through. Right. Then you also get farm fields. And each family is going to be given a strip in these farm fields. Um, and your strip is going to be right next to your neighbor's strip. And you're going to know everyone that's working around you. And you can plant... Not exactly whatever you want, but like you're responsible for this this strip. And so there's a little bit of crop rotation happening, making sure that everything's grown responsibly. But you and your family are responsible for that one strip. The thing is, people would generally kind of divide up labor a little bit among their neighbors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if your next door neighbor, you know, he's come down with a terrible disease because it's the 12th century, you're going to go ahead and weed his plot that week, you right. know. You and a bunch of other neighbors. Do the neighborly thing. Exactly. Because the overall production of all of this land, uh, there's a percentage of it goes to the landlord as basically as rent. Um, the more he gets, the more he can sell off and uh, improve the land. Mm -hmm. um, so you do have some incentive to produce well. But also the more you produce, the more food you have to just live. Right. Right. So there's there's very much a, a subsistence level of farming plus a little bit extra that's going to basically your rent and a little bit to land improvement. And then would all of the different families in that field be sharing the the fruits of their labor as well? 
to some extent, technically, whatever's coming off of your particular strip is yours. Right. Um, but I mean, I don't know if someone had a wild ox run through just their strip and no one else's, they right. would most likely help things out. Um, we have to be careful not to kind of like idealize the system too much. Um, that's a trap that a lot of you know socialist historians have fallen into in the past. We're looking at this like idealized time where like everyone worked together and there was no private property and blah, blah, blah. That's not really an accurate picture of what's happening. Right. That being said, the idea of private property is very different at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, you certainly own your home, but the land itself, just generally the earth, is not really thought of as belonging to anyone except maybe the landlord. And even then, it's more of a stewardship than it is a necessarily a strict uh, ownership. Right. This isn't the best system for growing. There's something known as the tragedy of the commons. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that that uh, phrase. That's the phrase I was trying to think of when you were talking about all those sheep grazing in that field. And it is originally related to this, but as a, an example of what the, the larger concept is trying to uh, convey, right. which is that when there is a communally available resource, generally people's... Um, instinct is to use it for their own personal gain as much as possible, uh, potentially to the detriment of other people who have access to that resource. Right. This was mitigated to some extent by landlords placing, uh, you know, limits on the number of animals you could keep, things like that. So it's not badly done. The system continues for nearly a thousand years, uh, fairly successfully. So it's not, it's not awful. Right. But the thing is, the land is slowly being depleted of of nutrients. They didn't have great uh, crop rotation at this point in time. Uh, they were using a three-field system. Uh, basically, what that means is they would plant one field uh, as uh, grains, um, sometimes wheat, but often barley or oats. They would plant another one with legumes, you know, peas, beans, things like that. And then the third one, they would let fallow, which is just leave the field alone. Whatever weird weeds grow up, they grow up. And then you kind of graze your animals in there. Right. This is to try and kind of keep nutrients in the soil because different plants can pull it, pull out different nutrients, but it wasn't working terribly well. Um, crop yields weren't that great, really, um, but it was enough for everybody to get by. Mm-hmm. And this is what I was talking about originally where, you know, comfort is sometimes an inhibitor to positive change. Everyone's doing fine under this system, just not progressing necessarily as we would define it. Then we get to 1348. And the Black Death rolls through. Right. A lot of people die. We've talked about the Black Death and other topics. Uh, we don't need to harp on all the terrible, terrible death, but we're talking oh, that's about... That's good. <laughs> well, we're talking about like a third of Europe dies off, right? That's, like That's not so it's, nice. It's awful. Yeah. And it has very real repercussions on, you know, just the fabric of society. It's not even just like the the, you know, the unimaginable grief that goes into it, but it's also... Hey, when you're depending on all of your neighbors to help you grow this stuff and a third of your neighbors just disappear, who helps pull the weight? Oh, totally. And I'm sure in some places it was more than a third. It probably wasn't perfectly sure. equally distributed. So oh, you know, not, you not even close. Most of your neighbors disappear and then yeah. everything, I assume, falls apart. Yeah. I mean, Britain in general did better than some regions of Europe, but, right. you know, still it's, it's a significant percentage. I don't want to pretend like they got off light or anything like that. Farming was really hard at this point in time. I mean, to plow a field, like they didn't, they didn't have plows. Like we have them, like, like you would think of them now. Right. They had these weird wooden wheeled plows, like they rolled and it took a team of six to eight oxen to pull one of these things. Right. So no robot tractors or no, not so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
you needed to maintain that and that that uh, equipment with your neighbors like it was expensive you needed somebody who knew how to fix that stuff uh you needed to chip in for new oxen when they got sick and died right um you were sharing that equipment when you lose a third of your neighbors you also lose a third of your collective buying power right you're losing a third of your collective labor power it's much more difficult and so what this means societally is that the serfs can't be tied to the land anymore. You can't leave them where they are because they're dying. You have to break them up. You have to take the places who are where, where they're most affected, take those people away from their homes and send them to new places where they can shore up more successful places. Right. So legislation goes out. It frees the serfs from the from their their land requirements, which is great for mobility. It gives. It, it's actually fairly positive for. Um, common people because all of a sudden you've got competition right you've got various landlords who are coming and saying please work my land right uh you know oh my rent you'll only have to give you know uh, an eighth of your grain well my land you only have to give a ninth well great we'll go to that one and you know there's some bidding wars almost for these people's labor i guess kind of like now how we can choose which job we want to go work at and sort of employers will but with a negative unemployment rate so there's like really strong impetus to not have any controls on any of this stuff right that's that's the that's the trouble with choosing where you work it's great when you actually have a choice in where to work when uh when you're short on jobs it gets a lot harder right for now though it's looking really good for the serfs um there is a a flip side to that though which is that the serfs lose that guarantee to certain portions of the land they're no longer guaranteed that that will continue to be theirs right so both of those things go away and at first that doesn't seem like a problem but as agriculture produces less and less and as there's less and less surplus to sell as cash crops landlords start looking for ways to um, find efficiencies in their land to produce more wealth from less labor and this is that impetus to change, right? Right. They start doing something known as enclosure, which is that they'll take off big chunks of those common fields and they'll literally wall them off. And they aren't available to anybody except the person who owns that piece of land. The reason they do this, there's a couple of them. Number one, they realize that, you know, with, with so many people gone, there are fields that are just they're rotting basically there's nobody working them and they realize that the best way to uh, maximize return off of that land isn't through growing vegetables it's through growing livestock mm-hmm. but you can't really have your sheep just wandering everywhere especially when they're as valuable as they actually are so you want to wall them in make sure they don't go anywhere that way with a very small number of people tending a very large flock of sheep you can get a very large return uh from wool from meat all of that so a lot of people start going into livestock rather than into agriculture. Mm-hmm. The other is the development of uh, the Norfolk system of field rotation, which is a four field rotation. Um, they take out that fallow system. So you still have your grain and your uh, uh, legume or sometimes two different grains. They found a couple of grains that work together fairly well. Um, then you add in uh, a field of yams which grow over the winter and they're really good for foraging. So like pigs can dig them up in the winter and eat them. Oh, so like just specifically yams. Yeah. That's one of them. Yeah. Interesting. And then the other one is clover. Okay. And clover is really good at fixing, uh, I believe it's nitrogen in the soil. Oh, okay. Um, yams does the same. It fix, fixes a, a, a fertilizer into the soil, but much deeper right. because it's a root vegetable. Clover is really good for um, 
sort of grazing, but it also acts as a um, nutrient replenishment. Mm -hmm. So then you don't have to work or rework a fallow field because that year off where it goes fallow, it's a pain to bring it back to like actual workable uh, quality. This way, your fields are always controlled. Thing is, you don't want people coming in with their animals and disturbing, uh, you know, the clover in particular was kind of kind of dear. Like you wanted as much out of that clover as you could get because you're trying to raise livestock on top of the, the crops. Right. Um, the yams also kind of block off the field for a year a little bit. Like you can't just have people going in there and planting whatever they want. Yeah. You can't, you know, plant your little, you know, grove of beans in beside them. The whole system falls apart if you do that. And so they realize that they get a lot better return if they just let one person work a fairly large amount of this uh, this land. Right. It keeps things a little more controlled. Yeah. So enclosure is originally something that stems from necessity. It's, it's just a very, uh, you know, practical way to uh, maximize these returns. But what mm-hmm. it's doing is taking people who don't actually own land and giving them less and less space to grow a subsistence level of living out of right. it. And it makes it much harder for much poorer people. So these enclosures, I have a couple questions if that's all right. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who is tending to them? Is, is it still the serfs? tending them that's the interesting thing you get uh you get this class of people who aren't necessarily noble but they are wealthy enough to buy these parcels of land okay and it's it's kind of in this period that land ownership is tied to wealth like the idea of real estate okay becomes like a very real measure of your uh your personal wealth um so people would buy these and then they would they would basically become like petty landlords themselves and they would go to these serfs and they would get them to work the land, Mm -hmm. but they're not giving them any space to grow subsistence farming on their own. They're just workers now. They're not. Yeah. They're, they're sharecroppers. Yeah. And, and these new landowners are people that would have previously been serfs themselves, but now sometimes, or, or just sometimes they're lords that aren't big enough to have necessarily a title of their own, but they are uh, wealthy enough to buy land and that becomes a very good investment for them. Right. Question two, when you say enclosure, I immediately think of like tall stone walls and like some sort of roof apparatus, which obviously isn't what it looked like. But what did these walls look like? Was it literally enough to keep people out or just to keep animals in? I I mean, you know, those those stone walls all over the north of England. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those date back to this period. That's what I was going to ask, what I was hoping you would say. That's so cool. So there's 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 two sort of eras of enclosure. The first one is this sort of natural, you know, way of things where the the walls would follow, um, you know, the lines of hills like they would go through the valley or they would cut along a river or something like that. Um, And there was a lot of resistance to enclosure um, by very uh, poor, unpowerful people, uh, which did very little, obviously. Um, But it got to a point really where where the government actually started officially uh, endorsing it, sanctioning it to the point where there was an act in 1800 that basically said like everything that's left that's not enclosed needs to be enclosed. Like we need to chop this all up, parcel it off, sell it if need be. and the second wave, um, those give you those walls that kind of cut across hills and rivers and whatever in a perfectly straight line right. with zero regard for any of the the local um, landscape. Almost like it was drawn on a map. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it comes with uh, requirements for, you know, there needs to be roads so wide in between mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, this is, this is really the era, era where you see property kind of 
really made a, a concrete thing like you own this piece of land and everything yeah. on it and it gives you particular rights as a citizen and as a person and I, I mostly bring this up because it seems like such a natural thing now but like this is not a super old concept um not in the specific way that we treat it now mm-hmm. um a lot of it stems to this and you'll see similar things come up in you know in the rest of the european continent and by extension eventually north america but it's all following this this english method like that's they're the ones that start this right and it comes from trying to maximize all of this farmland in the wake of the black death trying to make all of this work you get other advancements that come in here um we get proper plows uh basically they're brought to england by dutch traders that have gotten the idea from china where all good inventions happen originally (laughs) um and you go from using six to eight oxen to pull a plow to one to two oxen and all of a sudden it's much more manageable for a smaller number of people to till fairly large fields right and as the years go on and more efficiencies are trying are are found you get more and more inventions that are all about maximizing the efficiency of a single worker and it's not just about population issues anymore it's become about the fact that when you own land you want to squeeze as much wealth out of that as you can because land is wealth now right right and the way that you do that isn't by paying as many people to do really inefficient farming work as you can it's about paying as few people as little money as you can to do the same amount of work so that incentivizes things like for example um uh, the seed drill. A seed drill is just an implement that uh, places seeds in the soil at the right depth, at the right spacing, mm. which sounds really, really simple. But like, that's a thing that in in England they didn't have until like the 1700s. Right. It had been again in China where all the good inventions happen. But before that, people were essentially taking handfuls of seeds tossing them across the soil and then harrowing the 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 top of the soil a little bit kind of kind of ruffling it around Mm -hmm. hoping that like enough of them took to get a good crop and this is in an era where your return on seeds is like four or five to one so like every seed you put in the ground you're getting four or five back that's not a good return that's a really bad return and you're wasting a lot of seeds on a really inefficient sowing method right or you could hypothetically plant them one by one, which is extremely labor intensive. And you no longer have the people to actually do that because they all died in the black death. Right. So you get a seed drill and it just does it for you. It's a machine. It takes care of it. The same person who could have walked around chucking handfuls of seed uh, can just run the seed drill uh, behind a team of oxen and really efficiently and properly place seed. So so you were saying that that came to England around the 18th century. Yeah. When do you know when it was invented? Like originally? Oh, there's versions in in China that go back to, I think the earliest was something like 8,500. Oh, wow. You got to remember that the amount of communication that happens between the East and West is is pretty low until basically the age of discovery. Right. And it's very, not only that, but it's very like um, unreliable. You would get periods where there would be a lot of trade from the East and then, you know, uh oh, Constantinople fell to the Turks and now uh, they've decided not to let anyone through Istanbul and you don't get silk anymore right that that's just how it was so um something kind of that mundane almost isn't the kind of thing that would make that journey spices would make the journey uh silks would make the journey other like luxury items because those are the things that you can carry and make and make a ton of money off of 
no one's going to bring basic farming implements with them. Well, if you're lucky, think about it, right? Like, well, if, if you're lucky, you might get somebody who brought like a vague description of it. Yeah. And someone extremely enterprising might be able to work out something similar based on like a, an extremely bad description of something someone saw once. Like that's not a helpful thing for this like boots on the ground innovation that we're talking about here. Right. Um, there's no money in it. You also get threshing machines, which sounds like kind of a, not that big a deal, except it's really important to realize that until the thresher was automated, like just a thing that it, a thresher is just it it knocks uh, uh, wheat or or other grains mm. so that the seed falls away from the straw. Right. Threshing was about a quarter of the manual labor conducted in agriculture before wow. the invention of the thresher. People would just they'd have a flail, right, like a wooden flail, and they would beat the the wheat or the barley or oats or whatever until all the seeds fell away. And then you'd sweep up the, uh, you know, you'd, you'd use a pitchfork, you'd pitch all the, the straw and all the seeds would be left on the ground. That was 25% of people's time. That's bonkers. But people needed to work somehow, right? right. It'd be an unkindness to take that from them. Yeah. It, it is interesting how greed kind of drives all of these efficiencies yeah uh, which in the long run makes everyone more comfortable i mm -hmm. suppose yeah but like the short-term cost is extremely high oh yeah 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 and interestingly enough these greed driven solutions really only take effect in a in a, in a climate where people are already so hard done by that you know some more hardship is a worthwhile sacrifice to those who are benefiting from these innovations. Right. So there needs to be that imbalance. There needs to be that lack of equilibrium for this type of innovation to push forward, Yeah. which is a really interesting thing. And, you know, you want to be careful looking backwards and applying it too much to the future. But I think there is something of a lesson in there. Um, there's a, there's a saying, um, I'm going to butcher it. Uh, basically, that that uh, empires climb stairs in wooden shoes and they descend the stairs in silk slippers. Okay. Yeah. That there is a there is a there's a level of of hardship that goes into um, succeeding, and that in in sort of opulence and in sort of uh, um, um, stagnance, there's this this decline. Everyone's right. comfortable, but they're all going down together in this comfort, and that they don't even realize that things are going down because everything's so comfortable. Right. Again, one of those truisms that like has so many uh, uh, exceptions to it, but you can find a lot of examples of how you know in very macro terms that has been true at times in the past. Totally. So it it is a really interesting phenomenon, though. You do need that massive imbalance to make all of this work i also how love how um so far this evening every time we've spoken of wealth mm -hmm. it always is silk you know like mm -hmm. that that sweet sweet silk money on the silk road and these right. silk shoes yeah, yeah but like these days like i don't want silk <laughs> yeah i got some sweet nylons to to wear right <laughs> my my cotton shirt well, interestingly enough, we're, we're going to stop talking about silk as a, as a marker of, of, uh, of wealth here. And we're <laughs> going to start talking about uh, cotton. What a segue. Yeah. I think we'll, go, we'll, we'll take a quick break, though, before we do that. Cool. And when we come back, uh, yeah, let's, let's talk cotton. Hey, 
Hey folks, just a quick reminder that we do have a Q&A episode coming up for episode 100. So if there's anything that you'd like to ask me or any of my guests, I'm going to have actually a few people on for that episode, which I'm very excited about. Um, get them in as soon as possible and we'll do our best to fit them into the show. You can either email me, contact at hi101.ca or message me on any one of the other social accounts. There's so many of them out there. Anyways, back to the show. Back on HI101, here with Scott Weaver. Hey. And we ended on uh, on a bit of a note about cotton. Give you right. a little bit of a teaser. Just like the shirt I'm wearing. I think it's cotton. I mean, almost certainly. Probably. Uh, or Very breathable. Rather, I should I should say it's almost certainly a blend of some sort. That's fair. It's, uh, I, I learned a lot about cotton, by the way, <laughs> talking about this uh, or reading up on this subject. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk about cotton. Um, cotton's a really interesting fiber which is the weirdest sentence <laughs> and something i really did not expect to be saying but i learned a lot about it cotton is really common in sort of warmer climates so mm. you get like really stereotypical uh places that are that cotton was big you know egypt comes to mind you know egyptian cotton it's very fancy uh but it was also really common in in china and in india thing is it doesn't really grow that great at uh, more northern climates right. and so europe wasn't terribly familiar with it um they sort of had a sense that there was this fiber called cotton. Uh, it was written about in like ancient uh, histories. Like you, you've got your Herodotus. It was mentioned in there, but like people didn't have a great sense of what it was. There was mm-hmm. some exposure via the Silk Road. Sometimes people would bring through cotton fibers. Uh, there was some exposure through um, Spain. Uh, remember that for a while there, Spain was under Moorish uh, rule. Uh, Muslims from Northern Africa uh, crossed into into Spain and, and held there for a couple hundred years. Cotton was very common in North Africa, uh, and they brought those fibers with them. In England, it was barely known. Right. Um, one thing I love about cotton, it's not really, it doesn't really have a bearing on this <laughs> topic, but... Okay, so so here's the thing. There there were main there were mainly two fibers um, that people were using in Britain at this point in time. One was linen, and that comes from flax, right? It's a it's a plant, and flax is kind of temperamental to grow. Like it's a bit of a pain to actually grow it properly. And the fibers that it gives you are pretty strong, and they're pretty light and kind of breathable. You've you've, you've touched linen, you know what linen is. Oh yeah. Thing is. It's kind of brittle. Like it doesn't stretch. It right. doesn't have a lot of give. And so it kind of breaks really easily, which means that it's not super helpful for, um, you know, day-to-day use. You kind of wear through it kind of easily. They also have wool. We talked about all these sheep, the, mm-hmm. the wool that they're selling for cash, um, both inside Britain and they would actually sell it to the mainland. Wool is good because it's flexible, right? Like it's got spring to it, but it's kind of scratchy. It's kind of coarse. Um, it's really warm. And so if you don't weave it really thinly, uh, it can make for kind of an uncomfortable fabric. Right. Clothing, at least at the beginning of this story, when we're talking like Middle Ages, is not really anything like clothing that we would think of now. It is very much something that is made at home, and it is very much something that you would have one set of, and right. you would repair it or you would replace it as needed, but it's not like you have a different outfit for every day of the week. You're not going to H&M, your fast fashion and... Picking up some new wool. There was no trousers. like ye old navy. That was not a thing. Uh, you don't have sensible basics for a reasonable price. No, you would you would you would like at home hand spin fibers. Right. Or if you don't have a spinning wheel, you would buy wool from a from a neighbor, like spun wool, and you would weave it yourself. Um, it was pretty basic fare. 
cotton is it, it's a plant, so it has a lot of the same properties as linen. You know, it's light, it's cool, it's breathable, um, but it's springy like mm-hmm. wool. And people had such a hard time understanding how a plant would have that sort of property when they'd never seen one. That um, have you seen a cotton plant before? Like at least what they you have sort of a sense. I have sort of a sense. So like the the seed pod pops open and right. there's like a little puff of cotton. Like it's a it's a cotton ball. The right? little fuzzy thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. They had like basic descriptions of what cotton fields looked like, and they knew what the fiber was like. Um, so for a long time, and and this is this is a very long time ago, like Middle Ages, but for a long time they talked about cotton as though it was this plant that had little sheep growing at the end of each branch, <laughs> and they called it a vegetable sheep. And what? They, there was this theory that the little branches of the cotton were flexible so that when the sheep got hungry, the, the branches would bend down and the little sheep at the end of the branches would nibble at the grass underneath it. Like like an actual theory? Or this is yeah. just like a, a folk tale? No, that's that's what people thought might wow. be going on there. That's fantastic. It's it's so whimsical. I love it. It's, again, <laughs> got nothing to do with what we're talking about right. here. Although I, I guess it did help to explain why cotton would be uh, valuable to people in Britain. Right? These tiny sheep, man. These tiny sheep. It's crazy. <laughs> the problem with cotton, again, is the same sort of reliability that we were talking about with uh, trade for farming uh, materials. Trade to the, to the east is really unreliable. It gets disrupted all the time by various uh, geopolitical forces. You can't really count on anything coming from uh, even the Middle East, let alone China at this mm-hmm. point. And so, yeah, you would every once in a while get some cotton into the market, but that's not really something that was uh, of any concern, really. Um, and the, the the textile market in Britain was mostly focused linen and wool. Uh, sometimes a blend of the two to try and make a better fabric. We've got all of these displaced poor folk who don't really have this subsistence farming anymore. And what's going to happen with them is they're going to start looking for work. And a lot of them do work as sharecroppers. They're just paid labor on someone else's uh, field. But there's also this system that comes up, and, and this is what's known as a cottage industry. This is where the, the, the term comes from, of people who would... So, so you would have the, this, this sort of merchant class, uh, guild class of, of clothiers, people who would make clothing. And they would either sell bolts of fabric or they would sell finished clothes. Right. The problem with making clothes in this era is that it's extremely labor intensive to take it from raw wool to fabric. You're looking at a system where to make or to, to keep someone weaving fabric on a loom, and this is just like a little hand loom at home, uh, you need three people spinning, like on a spinning wheel. You oh, need wow. three people spinning to keep one person uh, in enough thread to, to weave. And you need three per, uh, three people carding wool. Carding is where you kind of take the raw wool and you've got those um, sort of wire brushes and you kind of brush out the wool. Mm. You get it all kind of straight and puffy. Um, you need three people carding per person uh, spinning. So to have one person weaving, you need nine people carding and three people we- uh, spinning. That's nuts. It's very labor intensive. Yeah, I'll say so. So if you actually want to be making clothes in any volume that would make you any money, really, uh, or even making fabric in any volume that would be making you money, you can't really do it all on your own. 
And so if you want to start making some money as a merchant, what you want to do is employ as many people doing all of this stuff for you as possible. So what you would do is you would go out to these, these poor folk who are barely scraping by on some, some, on like a little garden out back. And you would say, listen, I'm going to bring you some raw wool and I'm coming back in three weeks and I want it all to be spun into yarn. And if it's all ready to go, I will pay you X amount. And so you have these families, these full families all working to spin thread. And we're talking like the, the mother and children would be working. Usually you get the kids carting, you get the mother spinning, and you'd have the father weaving. It's everybody's working at this. Wow. And it wouldn't make you a lot of money, but it would make you enough money to get you through a couple of hard times with the subsistence farming. You'd have enough that you could get by, uh, you know, basically an emergency fund. That being said, it's a little bit better than what you would necessarily have on the old surf system because at least you're making some sort of capital gain. I'm right. not trying to necessarily forgive the terrible uh, conditions that these people were working in because it is piecework and it's not paying well. Totally. But like, it is a little bit of economic mobility, which is something. Then the Age of Discovery comes around and the New World is opened up and India is opened up. Um, you get trade coming back from India into Britain through the, uh, the East India Company. Hmm who's mainly trading spices, but they do occasionally bring some cotton with them because, hey, let's let's change it up a little bit, right? And initially, these these textile guilds in, in Britain that are starting to scrape together some semblance of wealth through this, this cottage uh, industry system, they're not too threatened by cotton. They're, they're fine with what they're you know, already working with. Uh, there's even a couple of sort of uh, Dutch expatriates that make a bit of a living off of uh, cotton fabric. And people love cotton fabric. Thing is, there's almost none of it on the market. And so it's pretty much a luxury item. Right. No one's really that worried about it. Then when they start exploring the new world, they discover new strains of cotton that they didn't have. Right. There is a strain of cotton there that is producing three to four times more cotton per uh, per bowl than uh, anything that's seen in the old world. And today, like 90% of the cotton out there is is from this strain. Um, but and where was that found? Uh, it's uh, that one uh, was, I believe, the Caribbean. Oh, okay. It's either the Caribbean or the sort of like southern United States. I can't remember right. which one. I'll, I'll double check and throw it in the notes. So it wasn't just a big new area that was warm enough to grow cotton. It was like also way better cotton plants. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's partially luck of the draw. Cotton right. was everywhere along that sort of equatorial line, but the cotton that was there happened to be better cotton for weaving. Right. The thing is, when you're spinning something, you want relatively long fibers because if they're too short, they won't spin together into right. a, a cohesive thread. These had longer fibers, which made it a lot easier to spin. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So cotton is great. People love the fabric. It's light. It's breathable. Um it uh, it holds uh, shape a little bit better, like it's springier because it's got that stretchy uh, quality to it that wool has. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it, it feels like linen in every other sense of it. People love it. Right. The thing is, cotton is incredibly time consuming to make. It's not just the spinning because like wool already has that spinning component, although you do have to go through all the same steps with cotton. The thing is, before you can even get to that stage where you're carding it and spinning it, the cotton has to be picked manually, which is extremely time intensive. And then when you pick cotton, you don't just get the bowl. You also get the seed comes away with it. Um, and you have to separate the seed from the cotton uh, puff. So taking those seeds out of the cotton is also very time consuming. And kind of the rate that you're making cotton or producing cotton at this period of time is like one person working like a full 10 hour day will get you about a pound of, of cotton ready to be processed. Right. That's not a lot. No. 
Britain had that sort of wealth or, or uh, labor shortage left over from the, the Black Death, and they were still kind of springing back from it. This wool textile industry was doing really well, selling either raw or, or uh, uh, wool fabric to the mainland. It was making everyone a lot of money. People were really happy with it. If there was one place in the world that could do labor better than Britain at this point in time, actually, there were a lot of places, but if there was one place that they were in direct contact with all the time, it was India. Right. There were a lot of people there. They were closer to the cotton. They were more familiar with the cotton. They had tools that they uh, had developed to work with cotton centuries before that the British were unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. And the cost of labor in India at this point in time was somewhere between a fifth and a sixth of the cost of labor in Britain. Okay. Keep in mind, Britain's already not getting paid that well to do uh, (laughs) menial labor. Right. But Indian cotton in the 1600s starts kind of flooding the market. Uh, Mostly they're sending it in the form of uh, calico fabrics and chintz fabrics. So like very like light, kind of breezy. So Mm. it's similar to linen in a lot of ways, actually. But people in Britain go nuts for this stuff. Really? It's fairly affordable because they're paying these workers nothing to do countless man hours of labor on it. The uh, East India Company is bringing enough of it to make it affordable to uh, less and less wealthy people. So it starts kind of permeating the market a little bit. And cotton is really easily printable. And so they've got these like really bright, nice colors on them that hold in like a really sharp way that Mm -hmm. wool won't necessarily hold. So they they got sweet new threads. Yeah. 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 It looks really good. Oh, totally. They're very excited about it. So is there a particular time that Indian cotton started flooding the market at this time? Like just the East India Company happened to start you're looking at kind of the, the 1660s after the uh, the restoration. So there's the English Civil War. Then you got like Oliver Cromwell, right? Like there was mm. the monarchy was gone for a little while. Then they bring back the monarchy. After that, the East India Company gets like a, a really firm um, mandate to go into the East and bring back mainly luxury goods. Right. But they are basically told make money, right? That's, right. that's what they're up to. And uh, they see cotton fabric as a really good way to make money because... Spices, while really like cost-effective to bring, are also only accessible to so much of the market. Mm-hmm. And so this is a good that is kind of luxurious and that people feel really good when they get it, yeah. but is also affordable that a bigger percentage of the population can afford to buy it. Everybody wants some nice, new, bright cotton trousers. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, throughout the 1600s, like clothing really comes into its own as a, a fashion um uh, item rather than just a function a functional item right um people start caring how they dress and you know of course that extends up to the nobility that's always been true of the nobility but all of a sudden fashion is accessible to more and more people right and a good chunk of this is because of the expanding textile industries uh, up north in england uh, you know manchester nottingham those are those are major centers of of uh uh, textile making, um, specifically because they're a little bit more humid up there and it makes it easier to spin when there's oh, more okay. humidity in the air, Interesting, which is a little weird quirk of history. I, I, you know, why there instead of London? Well, it's because <laughs> it's, cause it's extra foggy. Um, they were doing fine and, and that was making more fabrics available to more people. But the ease with which cotton was printed and the printing was actually done in London. So it created jobs in London as well. Um, the ease with which it was printed made that fashion much more accessible uh, and, and much more flashy to the average person. Mm-hmm. Cotton's going to be a big deal. Apparently. <laughs> Problem is, uh, the Indian cotton is so popular that it starts impacting the domestic market. And this is where uh, good old protectionism kicks in. Right. Because English fabric merchants are extremely upset about this. Uh, they feel like they're 
um, basically being undercut and that all this money that's going to the East India Company should really be going to them, even though the Indian cotton is uh, really only so popular because of its affordability. Um, so the British government uh, reacts extremely rationally and level-headedly uh, and bans all import of cotton <laughs> fabrics uh, in what's known as the Calico Act of 1700. As you do, yeah. Uh, this still allowed for the import of bulk raw cotton um, because they wanted to protect jobs, like they wanted to protect people who were processing cotton. Um, it's just that the processing industry was really not that big at this point in time. It was mostly importing the the fabrics themselves. Mm. And so they were hoping to kind of move jobs down into uh, manufacturing rather than just import. Right. But the British cotton was doing really well, too. And nobody wanted to buy this wool and this linen. And they would basically import as much cotton as they could and make this all cotton uh, fabric that, you know, people really loved and was really cheap. And the British textile makers were still not that happy about it because they wanted to sell their more pricey uh, and more locally sourced uh, goods. So the government makes another change in 1721. Um, and at this point, it prohibits um, the import of everything except raw cotton. And raw cotton can only be used to uh, make a fabric. Um, uh, it's called fustian. And it's a, it's a blend basically of uh, cotton and linen. Mm. And the linen helps kind of stiffen it. And it's used mainly in like men's clothing, like overcoats and things like that. Right. It's not something that's like going to make you a nice shirt, right? It's it's very much like a, a functional, um, think almost similar to like jeans material. Like fustian okay. tends to be like a lot of like jean material or corduroy or uh, tweed, things like that, um, that are like kind of stiff and, and uh, uh, you know, canvassy. Uh, right. really really uh really durable um, but that's the only thing you're allowed to make with cotton in this period of time so specifically not a fashionable thing i mean it could be made fashionable but not fashionable in the way the calico was calico right. was great because you could buy a bolt of printed calico and you know make a really nice dress out of it fairly easily at home yeah um for not that much money and yeah, I, I like I said, this is really a protectionist act. It, it comes across as bitter, and I think that's because it, it is. Um, <laughs> there's not much to, to say about that. There's there's uh, there's a whole industry here that's going. We want people buying textiles. Why can't it be our textiles? Mm -hmm. uh, even if those textiles aren't particularly good. I mean, that's a hallmark of mercantilism, right? Is this this protectionist behavior, um, cutting off markets that might have a superior product for a lower price. Uh, entirely to protect uh, national interests. And right. that's entirely what this all is. Mm -hmm. The market within Britain up until this point for, for textiles had been fairly regional. But around the same time that all this cotton is coming up, um, two major things happen. Number one, transportation starts getting a little bit better, like road systems and things like that. So that you could actually sell outside of your kind of sphere of influence, right? right. Uh, number two, um, they started putting into place um, standard measurements and uh, reducing local tariffs and things like that, and essentially set up uh, a free trade region within the British Isles, which sounds like a no-brainer now, but is actually a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, this is something that the Germany isn't going to pull off uh, until the mid-19th century. Right. So this is really important to the development of their economy. That's fascinating. I never thought of not having free trade within a country but like it's it's oh, I mean, obvious when you mention it. We don't for certain goods in Canada today. Yeah, I mean, fair. like it's 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 <laughs> it, you know uh, regional protectionism is is alive and well. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, that's why uh, you know there's uh, well alcohol is the one that comes to mind. That's, that's true. That's provincially uh, 
mandated if you're if you're bringing in beer from two provinces over it's considered an import so gonna pay a premium right <laughs> it's kind of weird it is kind of weird but that was for everything that's very weird the main thing that breaks that down is again that that um that agricultural revolution that we were talking about because you get to a point where you're not restricted by selling in your local market right you want to be able to sell as widely as possible to take advantage of cash crops. Mm -hmm. And as you get better transportation in between various regions of the country and you can sell your stuff farther, you can make bigger farms that produce more, further consolidating land and reducing the number of workers that you need. Right. So it's all part of those efficiencies. But that helps out the textile industry, um, you know, allowing this uh, fairly wide network of people to feed supplies into these relatively small number of uh, merchants actually selling cloth throughout the country. In 1733, a guy named John Kay comes along and he invents uh, what's known as the flying shuttle. This is a piece of technology for uh, looms for weaving fabric. I'm disappointed. I, I immediately imagined the space shuttle zooming off. I know it's a little early for that, but like, yeah, we're, I was we're very excited. We're a little off. For that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so basically, what's happening here is when you wove something before, you you know, I'm not sure if you remember seeing a loom at you know one of those historical recreation places. <laughs> I in think your I kid, can right? picture one. Yeah. You know, you got the yeah. you got the upright threads, and yeah. you you move them back and forth, mm -hmm. and you send a, a loom back and forth across uh, um, the, or you send a shuttle back and forth forth across the loom. Mm -hmm. So before, what you'd have to do is basically manually feed it through the entire thing and grab it out the other side, pull it taut switch the loom and then manually feed it all the way back through. Mm -hmm. So you could make something on your own on a loom if it's about three feet wide and that's about it because that's about as far as you can reach through. Right. And if you're making anything broader than that on a broad loom, uh, you would need to work with another person. Right. And you'd have to hand it back and forth. The flying shuttle was this mechanism that basically laid a track uh, across the loom. The, the track would come down uh, in between and uh the, the shuttle, you would slide it across. There'd be a mechanism at the other end that would kind of catch it. And so you could just slide it across, go over, slide it back, go over, slide it back. And the original version of that just allows one person to do the same amount of work as two people could do before, mm -hmm. uh, weaving a much wider piece. Um, there were further inventions added on to the, the flying shuttle that would uh, allow for like an automated return device coming back across the track, you know, spring loaded and stuff. Right. Um, People would continue refining this. Um, a main inspiration for mechanization in this period are uh, grain mills, which were usually water powered. And people kind of realized, well, if you can get a water mill turning a shaft, if you can get something to run by just turning it, you can automate things using water. Right. The, uh, the flying shuttle allowed people to begin finding more and more automation uh, opportunities for, uh, for weaving. Um, if you can have the shuttle return to you through mechanization why do you even have to push it through yourself on the in the first place totally Just have the machine do it for you right in the short term though the thing that the flying shuttle causes is a massive crisis in supply because we were already at a point where you needed 12 people to support each loom right nine mm -hmm. people carting three people spinning we just doubled the output of a loom and all of a sudden that goes up to 18 and 6 right right so you all of a sudden have 20 people uh, or 20 people's worth of labor supporting each loom that's making fabric. 
we're running out of people to make thread and it had already been kind of unequal coming up to this point. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of work going into, um, making this fabric, but as soon as the, the looms themselves start getting more efficient, yeah, that supply side crisis, um, it gets people looking for solutions because it, it really is a problem. There's just not enough thread to go around. Right. And anyone who owns a, uh, a loom, you want it to be running as much as possible, right? You want to be doing as much work on it as you can. Otherwise, your investment in this very expensive piece of uh, machinery is not really helping you because you're not making more money than you would have with the old style of loom. Totally. So why buy it? Yeah. There's a really strong impetus to keep things working as much as possible. Absolutely. Extract as much value out of it as you can. Exactly. The first big breakthrough comes in 1748 when uh, a carding machine is invented uh, by a man named Lewis Paul. I, I should I should mention right now, actually, um, I'm saying that these things are invented by these people. Um, this is usually the first person to patent the device, right? And is almost never actually the person who invents the 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 device itself. You got to keep in mind the patents are a fairly new idea at this point in time, mm-hmm. and. The idea of someone owning uh, the rights to a mechanism is a really, really new thing. People didn't always patent because it didn't really seem like that important a thing to do. Right. I just made this loom better. What What am I filling out this paperwork for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times the credit goes to the person who patents it and usually uh, they're recognized as the inventor just because they're the most well-known person. They, they managed to actually uh, kind of make the invention widespread. So right. uh, we'll keep throwing out these names, but you know, keep, keep that in mind. They, they <laughs> most likely stole it from somebody. Um, so this carding machine takes out some of the, so, or takes some of the pressure off of the, the carding process for these fabrics, but the, uh, the spinning still takes a lot of time. Um, we're getting a little bit better that we've taken a little bit of the pressure off. Then in 1764, um, a man named James Hargraves, uh, again, probably not him, but uh, invents something known as the spinning jenny. And the spinning jenny is a mechanism that can spin multiple threads at the same time. There's all sorts of anachronistic stories of how he figured out how this mechanism would work. You know, the the one story is something along the lines of the you know his his daughter named Jenny knocked over their home spinning wheel, but he noticed that the flywheel kept going even when it was, <laughs> uh, you know, horizontal, and realized that there's no reason a spinning wheel needs to be vertical, and if it's horizontal, uh, the shaft is spinning just like the shaft would be spinning in a mill, and that you could uh, attach more wheels to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's that. completely <laughs> nonsense, right? Yeah. Like that never happened, but, um, that sort of thing is going around trying to explain what exactly is, is going through people's minds. So this is still a mechanical, like a, a, a human powered invention, but it's basically a spinning wheel that can spin multiple threads at the same time. The first ones were doing like four at a time, which again is, is much better than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and starts taking more and more of the pressure off of that supply side. We're spending a lot less money on labor, just getting the raw materials into a workable state. Mm -hmm. And this whole time, the textile industry in Britain is getting more and more wealthy. Mm -hmm. We are mainly talking about cotton production here because it is still, you know, raw cotton that's coming in. Some of these uh, ideas are being applied to um, uh, wool as well, but cotton is really kind of the holy grail for these textile makers as much as they rejected it when it was coming in from india they recognized that listen wool fabric just is not stacking up to cotton cotton is just better and they've basically gone to the government asking for protectionism and gotten a blanket statement from the government protecting against pretty much all cotton but what they're doing is trying to develop a way to work cotton that is going to be competitive with the indian market right 
1767, uh, something that's known as the water frame is developed. And this one is a spinning wheel that is water powered. So we no longer have someone sitting there pedaling a spinning wheel or a spinning jenny, as the case may be. Uh, this is developed by uh, uh, Richard Arkwright. And the original one could only spin one uh, uh, thread at a time. But you could have a worker set it and the water would spin it for you. Now, the thread wasn't great. It was kind of loose and kind of coarse. Mm. Um, spinning is one of those things that like people got really good at, but like there is definitely like a skill aspect to it. You have right. to keep like the right amount of tension uh, to loose and the thread will be kind of, uh, it won't be very like hard. Like it'll be really soft and it'll kind of pull apart easily mm -hmm. and it won't be very straight. Pull it too tight and it could potentially snap on you. So you have to find that sweet spot. And that's something that's really hard to calibrate. It's a bit of finesse. Yeah, with yeah. a machine. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the raw materials that are going in and you know mm -hmm. things like that. So figuring out how to spin mechanically at all is really important. Arkwright didn't just stop with inventing this thing. He decided to take this whole idea to basically its logical conclusion. Um, he established what's known as Cromford Mill in 1769. Um, we had gotten to a point, you know, with the, the spinning Jenny and with the uh, more effective uh, uh, looms that the textile industry was less interested in going out to people's homes to get all of this stuff because it's time consuming to go do a circuit drop off uh, uh, raw materials and pick up process materials. Right. They realized that if they just got a bunch of these people in the same place doing the same thing, um, it was a lot simpler for them. And like right. too bad they would have to leave their home and their families to come do it. But it sure is more convenient for the owners. Uh, so they get people to come into factories. This is the, the factory system. It's the origins of it. And right. originally a factory is just a big building where a bunch of people do manual labor together. Um, it's a matter of convenience and of gathering more mm -hmm. than anything else. Efficiency, I guess. Yeah, because I mean, you do have a, an aspect of, you know, if somebody's uh, spinning wheel breaks down, you'd have the guy there who knows how to fix spinning wheels. You can look after it right away right. rather than, you know, waiting for a while for, I don't know, the spinning wheel repair man. I don't know who fixes spinning <laughs> wheels uh, to come around and figure it out for you. Um, I, I'm guessing that's probably something somebody did in their homes, but you take my meaning. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. The other part about the factory system that is really important is the division of labor, right? If you have somebody who is processing things from carding to spinning to weaving, it's not as effective as if you have somebody who does nothing but spin all day long, right? Just keep their little hopper full of uh, unspun uh, cotton and keep them spinning all day long and mm -hmm. they'll get really good at it and that's all they have to worry about. Um, the division of labor is really important to these efficiencies. Arkwright goes, okay, that's great. Why don't we get a bunch of these machines that are water powered in the same room uh, as these factory workers? We'll, we'll kind of bulk them all together and we'll do all the work in one building. Like we'll get it all from start to finish in one building. Raw cotton will go in one end and finished fabric will come out the other. Right. Just like a giant cotton fabric making machine yeah 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 and i mean a lot of this stuff is still very manual at this point but the idea is that the the building itself is well, sort of a black yeah. box when i say machine i mean sh machine with a bunch of poor humans in it doing oh, yes. a lot of the work yeah correct yeah. and it's terrible it's oh, yeah. terrible working conditions you hear right. these stories about uh people getting all sorts of horrible diseases from like inhaling all these fabric oh, yeah. fibers all day long and you know you have to keep in mind these guys were working 10 or 12 hour days six days a week not and, a lot of workplace health and safety going oh, on oh no 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 <laughs> none of that's slow down production right <laughs> now you have another problem at this point which is that 
production of all this thread is finally getting to a point where cotton growth itself is a problem. Remember, we were talking about people doing like one pound a day. Right. The good news there for the uh, for the British textile industry and the bad news for the subcontinent of India is that in 1757, uh, there's the Bengal conquest in which Britain takes a direct uh, uh, level of control over over uh, in, uh, the better part of India. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an episode we did on tea uh, that's uh, actually one of my favorite ones that we go into some depth on this. But um, one of the uh, one of the con- uh, consequences of the Bengal conquest is that they limit uh, cotton export to Britain only from India, uh, and they export. M- enough cotton that it's probably more than the Indians would have wanted exported. They probably would have wanted to keep a bunch of that for their own use, but they basically mandated that whatever Britain wanted to take, they could take. Um, So that ups their supply of cotton. Now they're, now they're flush with, with raw cotton. This is great. Everything's going really well, specifically for the textile industry. Sounds like it. Yeah. If you own a textile mill, you are doing all right at this point in time. Right. Did any of this wealth filter down to the people working in the textile mills, or is they still pretty miserable despite all of this wealth generation happening? See, that is a very, very contentious question. <laughs> there are people who will say that this is the worst living condition that anyone has existed in since hunter-gatherer times. Right. You have people who are living in squalor. They're living in these these shacks with dirt floors uh, that they have, you know, no fresh vegetables to eat. All they can afford is this, you know, th- this terrible bread that's made out of like half barley half wheat it's not terribly good for you they're all vitamin deficient they're living short lives um you have other people who are saying like well but you have infant mortality rates going down and you have general levels of health going up and you have people with spending money for the first time uh in history you know they're they're gaining some sort of uh, uh or some measure of personal autonomy through their generation of wealth and that's mm-hmm. a good thing I I would imagine that the answer is somewhere in between. Uh, a lot of it has to do with what level you're working at. A lot of it has to do with where you are. A lot of it has to do with what year we're talking about. Right. Um, this machinery, as it develops, you know, sometimes gets safer, sometimes gets more dangerous right. with various levels of automation. Um, the amount of time that people spend away from their families varies. Uh, you know, at certain points in in this story, you're talking about you know, entire families working together in factories. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like, would you rather spend 12 hours a day uh, with your family or separated from them? But by the same token, is it a good thing or a bad thing that you have eight-year-olds, you know, carding cotton? Right. Um, I mean, probably not a great thing, but... (laughs) But I mean, that's that's the other thing here too, is, you know, child labor becomes a really uh, tricky question at this Mm. point in time in that child labor has always existed. It's just that in this period of time, it becomes more dangerous than it's ever been before. Right. You always had kids helping out around the farm. Yeah. And yeah, of course, there's a little bit of danger to that. Sure. But you don't have, uh, you know, children climbing down uh, extremely narrow uh, mine shafts and coal mines and dragging out the, the the coal because they're, they're you know, prized for how tiny they are because they can get through smaller spaces. Totally. You know, it's all one giant, like, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things that improve here. There are a lot of things that decline here. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we're going to be going through a little bit of a, a health crisis. Um, putting that many people in that small space leads to things like cholera, for example, right? Um, but whether or not uh, specifically it's better for people's uh, material wealth, probably. Um, 
certainly better than when they were just hoping that they didn't get a bad winter because that could be death. Right. So, yeah, complicated question. Very complicated question. 1775, a man named Samuel Crompton invents what's known as the spinning mule. Um, the spinning mule combines the automation of the water frame. So it's running off of water power. Actually, originally horsepower. They had horses turning oh, in a circle, right. uh, powering this, but they, they soon harnessed it to, to water power. Uh, combine that with the multiple threads of the spinning jenny. So now you could have one machine spinning multiple threads at the same time without mm. any real human intervention. I love these names, spinning mule. Like, yeah. <laughs> where well, does that I, even come from? The... the the mule had something to do. I, I'm I'm going off my memory, but it's something along the lines of like a mule is like a horse and a donkey, right. like the offspring of a horse and a donkey, and oh. it was this hybrid of uh, the, the the spinning Jenny and the water frame. Nice. Um, so that one that one happens to have a, a pat answer, but a lot of them is like oh, right. whatever they felt like calling it, I guess. Or a lot of them are nicknames that workers would give to them, and who knows where they came from, right? Uh, rather than their official names. But anyways. The mule gets up to a point where it can spin like a single a single spinning mule can uh, spin 128 threads at a time. The spinning mule, the, the the mechanism behind it, with you know massive refinements, but the essential you know concept behind it is still in use today. Uh, it's it's a very efficient machine and it does a pretty good job of of spinning thread. And that's, cool. Yeah, it's it's good at what it does. Um, this essentially ends the cottage industry as we know it. It had still sort of hung on in certain capacities throughout the 18th century, but once you get to this level of automation, there's really no going back. Can't compete with the spinning mule, man. Not at all. It's well, I mean, it's doing uh, over 100 people's work uh, just on the spinning side, let alone the the carding side, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's uh, yeah. You can't match it. The textile industry in the 1770s petitions the British government to remove all these restrictions on cotton fabric. Uh, they've been in place for fi uh, 50 years. The technology has finally caught up to the point that British textile workers believe that they can keep up with uh, the prices of, of um, Indian cotton. Right. And Indian cotton is still better and it's still cheaper, but they're still doing it by what would be considered by the British more primitive methods. They're still doing it mainly by hand. It's getting, it's giving the cotton a better thread, like a more consistent, finer thread. And the cloth that results is much nicer, but there's so little of it because they're doing it by hand. Right. The British cotton is not good, but there's so much of it that everyone can buy some. What's more, that Bengal conquest that we talked about, it wasn't just mandating that cotton, uh, had to be sold to Britain. It also mandated that there could be no tariffs placed on British cotton fabric coming back into the country. Oh, you have to understand what this means for both Britain and India, like the, the relationship between the two, you have workers that are being paid nothing picking cotton in India. They're plucking it by hand they're removing the seeds by hand they're making at most a pound of cotton a day this cotton is then shipped on british ship lines who are paying the indian people at indian rates mm -hmm. they're shipped by all these people who are making money off shipping it all the way to britain there are people who are buying it in british ports at british prices they're paying british workers to fabricate uh, the cloth at British labor rates. They're then taking this cloth, shipping it back on British lines. So more British people are making money off of all of this. And then they are selling this poor quality 
cotton fabric to the wealthiest people in Indian society at rates that the average Indian cannot afford. Wow. So Indian people are being priced out of their own cotton. So what motivation do these wealthier Indian people have to buy the lower quality British cotton when they have like wicked sweet Indian cotton that they could be buying? Because British mer merchants have uh, uh, first call on that Indian cotton. Oh. And because um, it's a status symbol to have British cotton. I guess, yeah. This is colonialism at its most insidious. Right. And it's really important to understand this is why people have colonies. Um, this is what is known as a captive market. You basically take another place and you force them to buy your goods at exorbitant markups. Right. You're taking massive amounts of natural resources that through any other understanding of the way natural resources work should be India's to control mm -hmm. and to do with as they will, forcing them to part with it, utilizing those, those materials in your own uh, home industries, and then profiting off of that exploitation by selling it back to the same people you've just exploited. Right. This is how the industrial revolution was paid for this is why places like india or rome or china don't have an industrial revolution at the same in the same way mm. britain uh, uh benefits from not only that labor shortage that kind of kickstarts the whole thing mm -hmm. and not only the sequestering of of, of uh, or specialization of labor into uh um urban centers into these factory systems, but also the exploitation of the raw materials needed to fuel right. this industrial revolution. They happen to have a whole subcontinent that they, they get exploit to pay for all of this. Why would you invent a better loom if you don't have the cotton to weave with it? Right. As long as there's that surplus of natural resources, it keeps driving that innovation mm -hmm. because the cheaper that you can make it for, the more margin you make off of selling it back to the people that you've stolen the natural resources from. Right. And I guess there's no point making it more efficiently if you can't get enough resources to the, the, the supply of work that you have available to perform. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's this self-perpetuating system that really artificially buoys up the entire British economy. Interesting. And it's, it's ingenious. Well, I mean, in a very kind of evil sort of way yeah totally <laughs> absolutely I, I don't don't get me wrong i i'm not i'm not a fan of this whole system but yeah. my goodness it was effective <laughs> there's a reason that britain in this era is considered is such an economic powerhouse in oh, europe totally. they have this captive market system on lockdown it's not just india it's also the the british colonies in north america oh, it's yeah. also various places in the caribbean where they're using the same captive market system uh but with uh with sugarcane instead of cotton right mm. you know you've got uh local people harvesting uh, uh sugarcane at next to no uh wages uh and selling them to britain where they're you know re refined into rum and just sold right back um and when that's not making them enough money, they're bringing slaves out of West Africa to do the labor for free. Right. This is how Britain makes the money in this time period. It's consolidating natural resources, funneling them in at uh, uh, artificially low prices, and then forcing people to buy them when there isn't even necessarily a demand. Colonialism. Yay. Told you it wouldn't all be fun games on this one. <laughs> but like the name spinning mule is still fun sure yeah no flying, i'm a big fan flying shuttle oh 
here's, we, here's had the, some, we had some laughs. <laughs> here's the thing about colonies that I think I, I've brought it up a number of times on this show, so it won't be you know new to all of my listeners. But I, I, I think it's really important to understand, especially you know with with us growing up in a country that was originally a colony. Right. Colonies are not established in the hopes that someday they'll grow up to be real countries, right? Totally. Like they're not, you know, the, the the colonial powers are not our our parent countries that like are hoping someday we'll leave the nest. <laughs> we are here for their economic exploitation and we are useful to them as long as it keeps making the money out of a massive economic imbalance. Mm-hmm. And the moment that we stop being worth it to them is the moment that they'll consider uh, independence unless you're going to go full revolution, uh, United States or Haiti style. Right. Those are the two options. You violently separate yourself or you outlive your your usefulness economically. This isn't this isn't a hoped for outcome. Yeah. So I guess England wasn't the benevolent country going out and trying to develop all these other countries into no. big kid countries. No. No, not so much. Well, I mean, if anything, they're they're uh, against industrialization in these places, right? Because right. Because Indian industrialization was hurting the British market and so they suppressed it. Yeah. They're not allowing Indian cotton fabrics to be exported to Britain. They're only allowing raw cotton to be exported to be manufactured in Britain. Right, because if the Indians are doing the manufacturing, then you have a bunch of British people out of jobs. Exactly. Well, can't have that. No, can't have that. Man. Well, that was a real bummer. Right? Does it get happier now? Nope. (laughs) In 1793, Eli Whitney patents the cotton gin. You heard of the cotton gin? I mean, it sounds like a delicious drink. Uh, gin is actually uh, derived from the word engine. Uh, um, the cotton gin is a machine that has existed in, in many, many forms for a long time before 1793. Uh, the cotton gin is a means of mechanically separating the cotton bowl from the seed. Hmm. And Eli Whitney's matters because it's actually you know, much more uh, efficient than doing it manually without requiring a great deal of skill. There have been versions of this that have, you know, existed in India and China, you know, for hundreds of years at this point, but they often took someone with like a lot of skill using it to make Mm. it even marginally better than just doing it by hand. Um, It's basically a a mesh screen um, that is fine enough or, or sorry, large enough that what you can pull the cotton through, but fine enough that it, stops the seed on the other side and so it just pops it right off Mm -hmm. um it's much more complicated than that but essentially that's what it's doing right with a cotton gin you can get instead of one person pulling out a pound a day uh you can get uh a team of two to three people producing 50 pounds of viable cotton per day that's a that's a big speed up it's a marked improvement. And again, we're solving that supply issue, right? We were held up by the fact that it took so much effort to pick and uh, uh, prepare cotton. Mm-hmm. Things aren't going to get much better in cotton production until the 1950s when mechanical picking is invented. Wow. It's going to take that long before picking it uh, without destroying the cotton uh, in a usable form is, is uh, developed. Right. The slave system that invent- that had existed in the United States up until this point had mainly been focused on things like tobacco, to some extent sugarcane, but that wasn't going terribly well compared to the Caribbean. Mm. Um, cash crops. Remember that really good North American cotton that we were talking about? Right. There were a bunch of uh, landowners in the southern United States who realized that, uh, you know, in the 1770s when... Uh, British cotton manufacturing really took off that there was a potential market there. 
And then when the cotton gin was invented in the 1790s, they realized that they could outproduce India. They also realized that they could get that labor for free right. using slavery. So they started planting uh, cotton after the, the invention of this uh, cotton gin. Uh, it was an American that, that invented this, by the way. Mm. Um, or patented it let's let's get real they, <laughs> they don't even think that that guy like they've, they've got other names for that who, who invented that one but anyways he's, he's the one who's got the name on the patent we'll, right. we'll leave it at that that's the one that usually people know it makes cotton extremely lucrative to produce that much for zero labor cost mm-hmm. um and it made the southern states extremely wealthy very quickly um the increase in the number of slaves in the southern united states increases in direct proportion to the amount of cotton needed for the British textile industry. Right. And, you know, t- uh, cotton production is a, uh, as a byproduct of that. So again, you have this very insidious nature. Keep in mind, this is for clothing. This is for clothing that people like, and they want it to be cheap. Right. It's really important to realize that I look, I don't want to knock the industrial revolution as though it's like a really, really bad thing. That's not true by any stretch of the imagination. It is improved living conditions uh, beyond the wildest dreams of someone living 300 years ago. But the early industrial revolution is built on these extremely destructive systems uh, that are designed to wring out maximum volu- uh, uh, value from really inefficient systems. Right. And we can't really... Uh, we don't really see these people abandoning um, these really terrible practices until it gets so efficient that you can still make a lot of money without resorting to these things. Right. By the mid 1800s, the United States is responsible for two thirds of the world's cotton production. Wow. In a period of 60 to 70 years, going from almost nothing to two thirds of the world's popul- uh, uh, production, that's 80% of Brit- uh, Britain's cotton use. Wow. Even though they have a direct line on, on, uh, on India. I was going to say, what, what happens to India at, th- at this point? Oh, they become incredibly impoverished. Right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, this isn't getting happier. <laughs> the entire Indian cotton market is completely outstripped in quantity. Mm. The only thing that was holding Britain back uh, before this was the rate at which Indian people could pick cotton manually. Right. Now they have another source that's coming faster. It's producing a better cotton bowl uh, that is uniquely suited to mechanical production because it's the longer fibers, right? Which means it's more forgiving of mechanical means of weaving mm-hmm. uh, or, or spinning, I should say specifically. Um, and so all of a sudden you're getting okay quality cotton fabric at orders of magnitude uh, larger quantities than the Indian market can produce. And production in India collapses completely because it gets so cheap that even the pro- uh, product being sold from Britain t- back to India becomes somewhat more uh, affordable in India. Wow. Uh, to the point where there's really no market left for those people who are doing uh, traditional Indian manufacturing. Right. And because as we already established, Britain's not paternalistic at all. They just kind of let it all collapse. Yes. <laughs> it's good for Britain for it to collapse. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's good for Britain. That puts people out of work that can go and work the cotton fields or, uh, you know, other industries, say indigo or uh, tea. Um, they don't want an industrialized India. Right. They want to be the industrialized ones. Mm-hmm. Manufacturing is where you the, create the value. Right. And because of automation, they can create value without uh, the requirement of paying that value back into the population. Right. It's a really insidious thing. It, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's also very familiar. (laughs) 
little too familiar <laughs> in certain ways i eh? yeah oh yeah this is this is one of the reasons i was most interested in talking about this one with you is is, is that familiarity with like right? modern just kind of like uh, concerns stabbing in my heart <laughs> <laughs> um you know it's it's something i think a lot of people worry about now oh certainly um, a lot of people should <laughs> yeah all of these developments uh really uh promote thinking about how automation can better and better be achieved. But keep in mind, a lot of this stuff is is uh, predicated on water power or even horsepower at this point, like actual horsepower, like real horses right. hooked up to a wheel walking in a circle. <laughs> That's a real thing happening in a lot of uh, factories at this point in time. Yeah. Um, but that water power specifically uh, is going to come in very handy because anything that's invented for water power is essentially driven off of a, a single rotating shaft uh it's it's abstracted out from there quite a bit but mm -hmm. that's that's the fundamental unit of power for all of this stuff right a single rotating shaft right um i think we spent enough time on cotton uh again like i said to you when we started this there's a lot of stuff that we have to talk about before like the fun stuff but um that rotating shaft is where steam power is really going to come into its own mm. uh that being said um i think we've been enough of a downer today uh <laughs> i i really like to take a fresh run at all the cool like metalworking and railroads and all the fun stuff right so why don't we leave that here for today and next time when we pick up uh we'll talk about steam power right, give me a chance to kind of like get a little cheerier before we Get to the fun stuff. Yeah, it'll, <laughs> it'll be well worth it. Right, I'll go eat some ice cream. Nice. <laughs> the Industrial Revolution proper took place over a relatively short period of time, but didn't appear in a vacuum. Without the mobility of the British population, the establishment of labor and property ownership as the primary generator of wealth, the creation of the factory system, and an overabundance of natural resources cultivated under colonialism, none of it would have been possible. Next time, we'll talk about that short period and the rapid changes, both good and bad, that resulted. That episode will be up on July 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Oh.